Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapeniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We're always so grateful to have so many great listeners online, on the radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Remember, that's where you can catch us every week. And if you ever miss an episode, make sure to tune in online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, we've got a really great conversation coming up with a couple of guests. Who are you speaking with? We are speaking with a father and son research team from Wayne State University in Detroit, Dr. Ronald and Dr. Kahari Brown, talking about their book, Race, Sermons, and American Politics. It's going to be a really good conversation and hopefully some good takeaways for clergy about the importance of engaging people on social justice questions in their sermons and in their homilies when appropriate. Remember, everyone who's watching and listening, make sure to send us your discussion ideas. Just leave us a comment on our YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Dr. Ronald Brown and Dr. Kahari Brown. Dr. Ronald Brown is Associate Professor of Political Science at Wayne State University in Detroit, and Dr. Kahari Brown is Associate Professor of Sociology at Wayne State. We're delighted to have this father-son team to speak with us today. For over 30 years, Dr. Ronald Brown has taught Introduction to American Government, African-American Politics, Detroit Politics, and Religion in Politics. He is the co-investigator of the Detroit Area of Study of COVID-19 and the 2020 National Politics Study in conjunction with Wayne State University and the University of Michigan. Dr. Kahari Brown is president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. He teaches classes and does research on the sociology of religion. His research explores how race impacts the relationship between religion and social political behaviors and attitudes. He is also working on the National Politics Study And he's also served as a consultant for the Pew Research Center's 2020-2021 survey on African-American religion. This father-son team often publishes together, and we're speaking with them today about a book that they co-authored with the late James S. Jackson called Race and the Power of Sermons in American Politics. Dr. Ronald and Dr. Kahari Brown, thanks for joining the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you for having us here today. A delight, indeed. We've asked you to come on to the show today to talk about what Americans hear about social justice at church compared to with what they do about it and how they're motivated to, to act in that realm. But first of all, I think you have a strong background in social science and you're social scientists. What's the job of a social scientist? How do you observe the phenomena that you're looking at? What's the what's the task of the social science researcher? I'll start by saying that we're taught in graduate school to think about uh, the positive influence that empirical science can have on human behavior. At the same time, I've been involved my whole life in terms of religion or you know, churches going there. And so trying to have a bridge between these two things about this whole positive idea of science at the same time, kind of sacred space, the mystery of life. And so I think that this has made for me the uh, quest in terms of joining these two things together. And I'll piggyback off of that. I'll add to what Dad said. One of the the quests of social scientists is to better understand social reality. How are we to understand as human beings, how we are to relate to one another, how do our environment, our particular um, social political history of the time period in which we come of age, how does that impact our relationships with one another, how do our status race, gender, religion, our nation of origin, how does that impact how we see the world, 
our relationship with others. As social scientists, we're interested in, again, how does one social environment impact human behavior and human attitudes? And then as scientists, we try to develop methodologies to measure this. We're survey researchers, so we use surveys to try to understand how people think and how people behave. But there are many different ways social scientists try to understand methodologies social scientists use to understand social behavior. We use survey research. So what got you interested in studying the impact of sermons on political engagement of church members? From a personal level, it is, I've always been involved in religious settings and settings. And so I grew up during the uh, 1960s and 60s and 70s, and I heard very little political sermons. I mean, the first political sermon I ever heard was Jesse Jackson in Chicago in 1969, maybe summer 70, uh, Operation Breadbasket. That's the first time I heard a political sermon. And I've been intrigued you know, by this idea of you know, the role of religious speak in the public space and it, it, its influence on politics. And my involvement at the Institute for Social Research, been involved in national black election studies and with religion is a you know, prominent role in terms of the surveys that we've done. So I think it's both personal and professional. And finally, Wayne State, where I teach, students there are religious, I mean, very religious. And, and I have to, every class I teach on religion and politics, inform my students that we're not here to evangelize or to convert, but to have this as a, a quest, as Kahari said, for knowledge. So my interest is both personal, professional, and the fact that I've been involved in studies as a grad student and as a professor. I'll just briefly add on to that. You know, I, of course, grew up in mom and dad's household at church. We attended an African Methodist Episcopal church and dad was our Sunday school director. And so we had, we often had programs on Martin Luther King Day. We also learned about during the 80s, apartheid era, apartheid in South Africa. So we had discussions about that and we were moved to take a position on that. We had discussions about lettuce workers and great workers in California to what our obligation is to align ourselves with, to be in solidarity with um, those Hispanic workers in California that were advocating for more wages. So we learned about, because of dad and people like dad in church, a lot of these issues. And so it made sense to me that, of course, you know, we're, we're Christians, African Methodist Episcopal, that they would take position on these social issues. As an adult, after I finished graduate school, I attended, I was, we moved to Detroit, my wife and I, right across the street. Like the weekend we moved, there was an anti-war protest hosted by United Methodist Church right across the street from our apartment. It was the Cindy Sheehan movement. She was there. The pastor was giving a speech about American greed for oil as a motivation for this war. And I walked over there and it blew my mind that the church was this outspoken about this issue. So on a personal level, that furthered my interest in the role that religion can play in political attitudes and behaviors. And empirically, I wondered, are these examples that I've had in my life, are they just one-offs? How much can one generalize from my personal experiences across the board? What are churches around the country doing as it relates to war and peace and race and poverty and immigration? And so it was a connection between the personal and the empirical that really elevated my interest in this topic. I want to make the point, too, that what was curious about the, about the beginning of the Iraq war for both of us is this, this question of persuasion. How mm, persuasive right. are clergy? Because right. at the same right. time that you have clergy doing this, Right. President Bush, I thought at the time, did an excellent job of infusing religious rhetoric in his talk that he was giving to the American public. Right. And so you have this power of clergy, right. but also an American president. And so which voice is more persuasive? Is it the secular leader 
or is it the leader and your local congregation? And so I think that, and I think Ahar is correct. I mean, the Iraq war for us was a huge issue in terms of the public space and look backward and look forward to have some idea of what we think is going on empirically. You talk about the role of civil religion in your work and just digging into that point, Dr. Ronald Brown, about the Iraq war and the, the way in which President Bush at the time harnessed American civil religion as a way of saying this is part of our responsibility in the world is exporting democracy and mm. the light of freedom and all this other stuff. Tell us about that American civil religion and the way in which that intersects with and how preachers tend to utilize American civil religion in sermons about politics and justice more generally. We cite de Tocqueville and his visits to America in the 19th century and seeing just the role of religion privately and publicly in local communities. And so it's always been here. And before that, you had Thanksgiving sermons. You had sermons mm -hmm. by clergy, Puritan clergy and others about the role of the legislature. So it's always been here. And one final point, I think that American presidents understand this and they want to be reluctant. And so they use this to move the American public to move toward what they think happens to be, and from their perspective, the national interest. So a president like Bush or Lincoln will use religious rhetoric to try to move the American public to persuade them to move in their directions and make sacrifices that are important for the nation and particularly for their political party. So I'll piggyback off of what, what Dad has, has said. I mean, when you look at American history, but you do see kind of two threads of this civil religion that emerged throughout American history. On the one hand, as Dad said, we see leaders use a form of civil religion that reinforces the nation's position. On the one hand, what you see is this form of civil religion that suggests that as Americans, we are in the position that we are in, in terms of the wealthiest nation, the strongest nation, the nation with the best universities, because of providence. And our position in the world is reflection of God's providence, the reflection of God's grace. And so the extent to which you see that there are inequalities in this country, or there are conflicts between the U.S. and other nations, it's really an indication that people are not taking advantage of the opportunities that exist within this nation. Um, or there are, there are other nations or groups outside of this nation that are trying to destroy what God has built. On the other hand, you have another perspective of civil religion that says, yes, we are exceptional. Yes, we are special. But yes, we have a covenant with God to try to move closer to God's will. As a blessed nation, as a nation with so many resources, doing God's will involves being involved in efforts to reduce human suffering. And this is an ongoing effort. So you do see these two strains. On the one hand, you can have clergy that are both Christian clergy, maybe of the same denomination, but take very different perspectives of our position in the world, you know, how they interpret civil religion. Is our position in this world a reflection of God's providence and that you know, there's nothing more for us to do? Or are we in this ongoing covenantal relationship in which we need to constantly strive to move closer to God's will? Clergy that speak up, they're often on this covenantal position where they're always questioning how close are we to moving towards God's will? That's all. This is a fascinating topic, and I, and I want to dig into your research, but I, I want to dwell on this point of civil religion because, in, you know, in the Catholic community, the church's engagement in the public square, we've taken a strategy of trying to call Americans back to the best of their traditions yeah. when talking about social reform and whether it's immigration, abortion, all these questions. It's what are our founding principles? Are we abiding by those? Are we living the great blessings of providence that providence has bestowed upon this nation. And so I find it, this topic of civil religion 
really, really uh, interesting. From your research, Drs. Brown, what are the successful sermons that call congregations and congregants to a deeper sense of social justice? Is it those that speak within the framework of American civil religion, whether whatever stripe um, Dr. Kahari Brown that you just mentioned, or are there another set of messages, particularly related to biblical themes like the Exodus, for example, or something else that are the most effective? What does your research uh, tell us in that regard? One of the things that Kahari and I talk about constantly is chapter five of Matthew, the Beatitudes, the clergy that use this and, and, and have the most imagination to move the congregations will move people to see racial justice as something that is important. Immigration policy is important. I want to piggyback. Last year, I taught Sunday school in my church. Another verse that we talked quite a bit about is Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about when the Son of Man returns, the people that will sit on the right hand of God are those that cared for me, the poor, the naked, the hungry, the sick, the political prisoners, the immigrant. Those are the ones that are doing God's work. Those are the ones that are following in Jesus's footsteps. So these are things that come up, the Exodus theme, the Beatitudes, Galatians, where Paul is talking about that there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, slave or master, male or female. These are things that, that come up, you see oftentimes in, um, in sermons throughout history. But one of the things that Dad and I also talk about and you find in the, in the literature is in addition to what is said, it's the relationships that the congregants build with one another in the place of worship. Congregations that have congregants that love one another, have a high sense of reciprocity with one another, that are generally friends and feel as if that they treat as if one another are family members. They're open to alternative ideas because you really believe that, you know, what you're telling me about how can I connect my faith to this particular issue? Should I sacrifice some of myself, some of my time, some of my effort to engage in this particular issue? You're willing to listen if you love that person, if you trust that person. So it is in addition to what is said, it's the relationships that are built within the congregations that matter. I mean, both have to be in place. That's what we find in order for there to be any movement in terms of people willing to think differently than what they've been led to believe and to question what maybe their political leaders that they voted for are suggesting that they think about a certain issue. Let's take one step backward into your methodology. When you started your research on political sermons, what was your hypothesis or what question did you set out to answer? And then, um, you know, what, what did you, what did you find when you did that? Our our hypothesis were that, you know, individuals that attend places of worship where they hear sermons about race, poverty, immigration, war, important political activism, that these individuals would be more likely to engage in varying forms of political activism and would support progressive positions on any number of issues. That was our hypothesis. This was informed by the research that we've read, the research we've done in the past, as well as our personal experiences. In terms of our methodological approach, we use the same approach that the New York Times or Fox News or any other polling firm would use to randomly sample large groups of Americans and ask them a lot of questions about religion, a lot of questions about politics, a lot of questions about policy, and see the extent to which how people's answers about their faith, what they hear in the places of worship, how supportive they are of their places of worship taking positions on issues, how is that connected with the role they believe the government should play in addressing issues of racial inequality, immigration reform, uh, diplomacy versus war, ways in which to reduce poverty in this country? That's the methodological approach, approach that we used. And then because you have vastly different racial experiences in this country, we wanted to see if the relationships that we observe between religion and politics and policy attitudes was similar or different across racial lines. 
And were there any differences along racial or political lines? Yes. What we find, as Dad stated, is that on the one hand, what you find is that African-Americans and Hispanics are more supportive of their clergy taking positions on poverty, race, and war and peace issues in general. That's what you find across surveys from the 1940s all the way to now. That's what you see. And African-Americans are more likely to hear sermons about politics, specifically race, poverty, war. Hispanics are more likely to hear sermons about immigration, which makes sense. Now, one of the things that we found that was seemingly counterintuitive is that what you find is that although non-Hispanic whites are less likely to hear sermons about race and immigration and a host of policy issues, when they do, those whites that hear sermons about race, immigration, war, poverty, they're consistently more likely to say the government should do more to reduce poverty. The government should do more to reduce racial disparities. We should take different approaches to handling international conflicts um, than simply military, military aggression. We should find ways to increase citizenship opportunities for migrants. You consistently find that whites that attend worship settings where they bring these issues up, they tend to be more progressive on these issues. Among African-Americans and Hispanics, that relationship is much weaker. You tend not to see a strong and consistent relationship between hearing sermons and the positions they take on any number of progressive policy issues. So the finding then is that although African-Americans and Hispanics are more open to sermons about progressive politics and political issues, they're less inclined than whites hearing similar sermons to think that government should be offering particular solutions to those questions. Did I summarize that correctly? Very close. So the second part is that we find evidence that hearing sermons move some whites to progressive position. That is not the case among African-Americans and Hispanics. African-Americans and Hispanics that hear sermons about poverty are no more or less likely than African-Americans that don't hear sermons about poverty that say the government should do something to reduce poverty in the nation. It simply doesn't matter all that much for them. You know, if you're a pastor or a church leader or a priest, what's the takeaway from your research? Because, you know, the, the big taboo is mixing religion and politics. No one wants to be divisive. No one wants to push people away. But what I'm getting from you and what I'm understanding of your research is maybe it's be not afraid. Maybe that there's an appetite for applying the gospel to the concrete challenges of our day and that pastors and religious leaders need to equip themselves because this is a moral imperative and part of what it means to foster discipleship. I agree with you. First of all, in terms of the, the race differences, it applies to what you're talking about. So one of the reasons why we believe and we're speculating here that we don't see a strong relationship between hearing sermons about progressive issues and, pro and progressive policy positions among African-Americans and Hispanics is because if you're an African-American and your clergy member or, or somebody in your congregation gets up and talks about mass incarceration, or they talk about the unfairness of the war on drugs, or they talk about police brutality, you already know that. You mm -hmm. have family members that may have gone through this. You may have gone through this. You identify with you know, the individuals on the news that you hear about that have gone through this. So it is an important source of information, but it's not really raising your consciousness. Now, if you are, in this case, white and you're hearing sermons about police brutality, that may come as a surprise to you that this actually is happening, that this is actually as, as systematic as the clergy suggests that it is. And for those individuals that are willing to say, I am open to an alternative position on the role that police play in society, those people that stay there are very different from those that are saying that I can't listen to this or I choose not to attend a place of worship where they're talking about these issues and encouraging us to think differently from that. Um, so it, it is the experience of the group that matters for this relationship. 
So among whites that are willing to, that are open to these alternative messages, uh, they're very different from whites that are not open to these very uh, um, alternative messages. For African-Americans, um, for the most part, they are aware of disparities that they are experiencing, you know, if, you know, in their community in terms of the schools, uh, public health disparities, um, disparities in terms of how responsive the police are when they call them, they are already aware. As it relates to clergy's willingness to take bold positions on these issues, um, for those that are willing to do it, you do see a connection. You, you do see in our sur survey, you see relationships here. And there's plenty of examples that you can see, you know, for example, right now we're looking at clergy that are involved in Black Lives Matter protests. And there's plenty of white Catholic and Protestant congregations that, that are engaged. It's a very small minority, you know, in terms of the, the entire population of clergy. And those who really feel that they won't lose their congregation if they take this position, they're out there. Um, and they can right. move consciousness and, and activism. Right? One point we find consistently is that it's a small number. Yeah. We're talking about probably less than 25%, maybe 20% of clergy are taking progressive positions in terms of uh, particularly uh, those who are white. The fact that we live in a segregated society, that's why you would, why African-Americans and Hispanic or Latinx community, you live experiences on Saturday or Sunday, there isn't any difference. It, however, if you are a white American and you live in affluent community, it may come as a shock. And why is it a shock? Because there's a gap between this idea of the golden age and providence and blessings. That's why your know, race matters. And, and for white clergy members in particular, it takes courage right. uh, and imagination to, to say, I'm going to talk about social justice issues. You talked about the importance of certain biblical passages and the importance of relationships within the congregation is building trust and helping those sermons land more effectively. What doesn't work from your research? So Dad talked about Reverend Regis. He was a, a rector, an Episcopal rector at All Saints in Pasadena about a month before the uh, 2003 election. He preached a sermon, an anti-war sermon, in which he stated that as an Episcopalian priest, he could not in good conscience say nothing about the war in Iraq, which he labeled as a war about geopolitics and an attempt to seize Middle Eastern oil for Western oil companies. That's what he said during the sermon. Roughly a couple months after that, the IRS was investigating the church for violating the tax code that prohibits nonprofits from engaging in partisan speech. Ultimately, they, they dropped the case. But the issue here is that it's connected to the congregants because if you go too far, you may bring the wrath from the state or from the media to shine a negative light on the congregation and you may lose congregants to say, I don't wanna be a part of this. This is too much for me. Or you, or you may lose future congregants that may say, I don't want to attend that congregation with all that negative light on the congregation. And so what clergy are constantly concerned about is maintaining the health of the congregation, the relationships in the congregation, obviously the financial health of the congregation. If you go too far afield from the status quo, you may risk your reputation, you may risk your congregation. So that's the challenge. And to me, I, I just want to just with this last point in. But reading about Paul's letter to Philemon in which Onemus, the runaway slave, came to visit Paul in prison. And Paul writes back to Philemon and says, treat him as a brother. He didn't say free him. He said, treat him as a brother. And I wonder, like, why don't, do you not go the next step and say slavery is wrong? Free him. I don't know why Paul doesn't go that next step. What I think about is that you may lose Philemon, a wealthy, potential Christian that may help you spread Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. Clearly deal with that today. If you go too far 
and challenging the status quo and people's connection to the status quo, their identity, their, their wealth, who, you know, their sense of self, you may lose people. That's a challenge. I mean, if you're trying to move people and, and walk with them on the journey of discipleship, you don't go from zero to 60, you know, you walk with them on the way True. and move them True. step yeah. by step. So know your audience and, and right. know, know what you can, how you can move people and gradually change their hearts. Cause few people will have a Pauline conversion right. uh, overnight. So that right. sounds like, sounds like what you're counseling is sound pastoral practice. Right. Uh, what we in the Catholic world these days, uh, following Pope Francis are calling accompaniment, the journeying together. So what, what did we not cover that you want our listeners to take away from your research? Well, I think the point that it's a clergy and activist burnout. Mm. What we're finding in our findings is that we asked about protests, campaign activism, engagement, it's between 20, it's about 20% constantly. I mean, it's not 30, 35 or 40. Black Lives Matters is different because it's a historical anomaly that occurred. And so everyone's out in the street. But after that, burnout, because you're calling on the same people over and over and over again. And so clergy have to try to find a way to expand as much as possible the number and percent of activists that would be, that would, that would engage in political activity. I think that is a real challenge that uh, all clergy confront in terms of expanding the base of activists so you do not burn out people. I guess the last thing that I would add is that it's something that we can't measure empirically, but it's a question that Dad and I talk about all the time, the role that faith plays, because you consistently see the relationships between religion and progressive politics, but you don't as consistently see that the results of their labors. So you may participate in a campaign to increase funding for your local public school, it doesn't happen. Or you work on campaigns to try to reduce gun violence. It doesn't happen. The gun manufacturers are still able to have influence over our politics. It doesn't happen. But you still consistently see throughout our research that 20, 25% of the time, people still say they are hearing messages about these very important issues. So to us, the fact that you don't see change that immediately follows activism, the question is, well, why do people continue to participate when burnout is real? We don't know. I mean, we think that there is something about faith, that, that the idea that even though I may not see the results of my labor, it will happen at some point. We can't measure that, but we have a hunch that that is true. That's happening. The sower sows the seed, and it may be for others to reap the harvest. Well, Amen. we've been blessed by speaking with Dr. Ronald Brown and Dr. Kahari Brown, a father and son team of researchers at Wayne State University. Their book is Race and the Power of Sermons in American Politics. Thank you very much, Drs. Brown, for joining the Bridge Builder today. Thank you. We'll be back again in a moment with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, and now it's time to dive into our practical tip of the week. Now that we're in the season of Lent, it really provides us a great opportunity to be growing in our prayer lives. And we want to encourage all of our listeners and our viewers to make sure that they're including their elected officials in their prayers. You know, whatever the sacrifice is that you're doing this Lenten season, you can include them in that sacrifice. You know, maybe it's an extra hour of prayer once a week and adoration, or maybe you're saying another daily rosary. Make sure to offer that up for your legislators that they might always be putting life and dignity and the common good at the forefront. And then let them know that you are praying for them. We have a really easy action alert, a way for you to send them a message and let them know that you're praying for them. 
simply go to our action center. The web address is mncatholic.org forward slash action center. And while you're there, you'll also see a number of other issues that you can contact your legislators about. Jason, maybe you can give us some insights on what some of those other issues are that people could be praying for and reaching out to their legislators about this session. I think two things really come to the top. One would be gambling expansion and imposing gambling expansion that uh, we would not put the interests of a privileged few who want a more entertaining uh, sports watching experience ahead of the needs of the many and uh, the way in which gambling can become a corrosive uh, dynamic in our society, a corrupting dynamic, uh, endangering families, people who are addicted, the young, putting people into greater debt. It's a really, really challenging uh, issue, and there's a lot of movement to create sports betting and legalize sports betting more broadly in Minnesota. That's one thing that people can pray for. And then as we have a debate about what to do with a large budget surplus, rather than that money going to special interests, uh, in a global deal that it should go to uh, Minnesota's most important producers are families, especially families with children, the people who need it most, because that's the most important task of our society is forming families and nurturing children. And, and in tough times, with a lot of inflation and other challenges, any budget surplus should go back to Minnesota's family, particularly low and middle income families. Yeah, definitely. All of our listeners check out the Action Center. Again, that address is mncatholic.org forward slash action center. Thanks so much for joining the Bridge Builder program. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. For more of your comments and questions and a practical tip of the week. I'm Jason Adkins of Rikitsipi at the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.